Indeed, I'm not a stranger. I recognize a lot of your faces, and it has been a great delight for me uh, to get to know Jonathan for, I don't know, something like four years. Um, Your pastor Jim and I have been praying together with a group of pastors pretty much monthly for probably more like five years or so, and met Jonathan in that context, and Jim said, you know, it'd be great if you took Jonathan under your wing. He needs to hear from somebody other than his dad. And uh, even when John was at Liberty, we were doing that. And now in uh, his seminary studies, there's a need for a field mentor. And, and was actually a field instructor for several of his classes recently. And um, as you can see, John is a man who's been given gifts by God. And you know, I look forward to following his ministry through the years. This morning, we're going to, or this evening, we're going to open up from John's gospel and I've set an ambitious course. Um, um, I've heard Jim preach, and I'm in no way detracting from him, but I want to do something that we don't often get to do. I, I know I don't get to do it in my own pulpit. Um, I'm taking a larger swath. I'm preaching through John myself. I'm in the 11th chapter. But I'm backing up into chapter 4, and I want to open up the Scripture uh, where we find Jesus engaged with the woman at the well, as she's often referred to. I like to refer to her as the woman at Sychar. That's the little village that Jesus was in. And there's some wonderful biblical theological themes that I hope you will go home with rejoicing uh, to see uh, the remarkable nature. John's one of the last books written. And uh, there's connections to the temple and uh, to the feast and how Christ is fulfilling those things. There's so many things unfold, unfolding in John's gospel. So with that, let's take our scriptures and stand together. We'll be looking at John uh, chapter 4, taking it up in verse 15. Let's stand for the reading of God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. The woman said to him, Sir... Give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You have well said, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. And that you have spoken truly. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is a spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to Him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called Christ. When He comes, He will teach us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am He. Thus far, God's Word, let us pray. Father, we marvel that through the foolishness of preaching that you open up the greatest book of old. 
uh, this inspired scriptures, that you would bring it to bear upon our hearts. Father, this only happens as your spirit would work, and we pray that your spirit would work in our midst as we seek to worship you through the preaching and the hearing of your word. Bless the one who proclaims and all of us who hear, that we might go home rejoicing, having been edified and instructed from your holy word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. From the outset, I want you to think of a question. We're going to come back to it at the end. The question is, are you a true worshiper of God? Are you a true worshiper of God? That is the living God, the one revealed in Scripture. Um, I think you'll be familiar with uh, the fourth chapter where Jesus is uh, on the move. And it's interesting that John records in verse 4, he needed to go through Samaria. Now, there are many who would say, well, geographically it made sense. Some argued that the Jews went around Samaria and went the long way around to avoid that city. But indeed, it was the most direct way. But John is recording something more significant. He needed to go through Samaria because he needed to go to Sychar because he had an appointment with the woman that we know as the woman as the well. Again, remember, John again and again and again records how Jesus said, I only do the will of my Father. I only do what I see my father saying. I only say what I hear my father saying. And in this respect, Jesus is the second Adam, fulfilling what the first Adam failed to do. He lives in a constant dependence upon the Father. He is full of the Holy Spirit, without measure, fully man, fully God. I know that that is doctrine that is familiar to you. And it is the fullness of his manhood. He's full of the Holy Spirit, and he is fully yielded to the Father. He, as the Son of God, particularly serving as the Son of Man, is in subjected to the Father. Not as the Son of God through all eternity, equal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But as the Son came into the world to save sinners, he is submitting to his Father, doing his Father's will, and he needed to go to Samaria. The Father had an appointment for him there, and we be great, can be grateful for that appointment. We're, we didn't deal with the passage where uh, Jesus asked her to draw water, and then he says to her, if you realize who was that spoke to you, you would have asked of him, and he would have given you living water. We'll touch on that in a moment, but I want you to remember that's the context. He is offering to this woman, a Samaritan, and a woman, life, eternal life. She marvels that he, being a Jew and a man, would even speak to her, that he even sees her, even though she's the only one there. She marvels at that because of the cultural uh, tensions and even uh, bigotry of the Jews of that day, and the Samaritans for that matter. But Jesus came to meet with her, and he promises that whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up to everlasting life. That morning in Sychar, actually noon, some 2,000 years ago, would have been like so many other for that woman. She would have gone about her, her chores in the morning and waiting for the, the midday hour, the six-hour high noon, so that she could go out to the well and draw water. She went at the sixth hour to avoid the other women, to avoid anybody. Nobody wanted to be out in the heat at the sixth hour. Drawing water was difficult. And in this well of Jacob, we know it was a deep well. It was a difficult thing. It took some time to haul up the vessel to bring water from its depths. Her life was a mess. She's living with a sixth man in her life. 
and she still lacks the peace she longs for. Life has been hard. She has made mistakes. But what else can she do, as many would say even today? But God had a plan for her even since the foundation of the world. And that this is that day when she meets her Savior. She is going to meet her Savior as she goes to the well that morning. The problem is, she doesn't see the need of a Savior. Well, she knows her life's a mess. She's moved from man to man. You know, she's an outcast. She even avoids the people of her own community. But she doesn't see the need of a Savior. She doesn't really understand that sin is the central reason why her life is a mess. Sounds like people in our day. People we know. People we rub elbows with. Jesus has just offered her the precious living water that makes and renews a soul. But what does she hear? What is her thinking? In verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst and come to draw here. She's saying, okay, we're at a well. He's asked me for water. It's high noon. It's hot. She is thinking of water, H2O, uh, what we all need. We're told our body is made up of some 90-something percent. I don't remember what it is. Long time since science class, right? But we're made up of water. You know, our vegetables are made up of water. We need to drink water, a lot of water. And so she's thinking water. If that means she can get some of this and she can hide in her house throughout the day, she doesn't have to come out in noon to avoid the other people from the community, it sounds real good to her. She'll be free from the burden of carrying her jar and drawing the water. But as necessary as water is, that's not her true need. Is it? We see that clearly. That's her true, not her true need. This woman is blind to what Jesus is speaking about, and she's unable to think about sin, salvation, a savior. Even though who is speaking to her? It is the Lord of Glory, the Son of God, come into the world to save sinners. She's blind to that. How can this be? Because sin, the sin of our first father, Adam, blinds her. When Adam sinned in the garden, we all descend from him. We all sinned in him and fell with him in that first transgression. Even as we're conceived, we are conceived sinners. We are conceived physically alive, but spiritually dead. We are spiritually blinded, incapable of any good. We come into the world sinners, and sin blinds us. There's also the blindness of her own sins. She's heaped sin upon sin. Her conscience is seared, and so she's blinded by that. But she's also blinded by the false religion of the Samaritans. We'll get into that more in just a moment. We look around this room at one another. We all look alive, don't we? And that's true. We are physically alive, but it may be that some present are spiritually dead. We may be even in a state that this woman is. It's what the Word of God calls the natural man. The man as he naturally is descending from Adam. No spiritual life in need of a Savior. The Word of God refers to this natural man. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God. For they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. That's what we see with a woman in Sychar. She doesn't know what Jesus is talking about. He's speaking to her about spiritual things, and they seem as foolishness to her. He's got nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. She points that out. But this man has offered to her living water. What is he talking about? He's speaking truth, but she is blind to understand it. 
The only thirst that she could think of is that which water from Jacob's well could satisfy. This woman at the well is talking to the Son of God, the King of glory, and yet sin binds her and blinds her. The woman at the well, no doubt, is somewhat aware of her sinful condition. She knows the shame. That's why she comes at noon. That's why she comes at the worst time of the day, because nobody else will be there. More importantly, sin separates her from God, not just her society, but from God. Why is that? Because God is holy, holy, holy. He dwells in unapproachable light. God Almighty has no fellowship with sin. The sin of others at times makes us recoil, does it not? We're often comfortable with our own sins. We recoil at the sins of others. Perhaps there's times when we're even troubled about our own sins. The sin, our sin, separates us from the holy God because God is infinitely holy, pure, unapproachable light, and our sins are foul, corrupt, and putrid. I frequently remind my congregation that we are like Lazarus lying in the tomb four days dead. Corruption has set in. Roll the stone back, but Master, he stinks. That's who we are before God. That's who this woman is, but she does not fully comprehend it. This is who Jesus is meeting with. So here, um, I don't know that I announced this point, but it's, this is the grace of the law. Jesus is addressing her where she's at in sin. And now we're going to consider God and grace. Notice in verse 16, Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answers and says to him, I have no husband. This is uh, remarkable. Her answer is so much shorter. She's been full of words up to this point, but now she is closed mouth. In the Greek, and I, I'm pointing it out in the Greek because when English translations are done, the number of words will vary depending on the translator. But in the Greek, she's used 11 words in verse 9. She's used 13 words in verse 15 when she spoke. In verses 11 through 12, she's overflowed with 42 words. But now, in verse 17, she has three words in the Greek. She's a little reluctant to speak. She says so little. Her answer just gets to the point. I have no husband. Now, let's consider that answer. Is she single? That's not a problem. Is she a widow? There's nothing wrong with that. It's a hardship, but nothing's wrong with either one of these. But her short answer doesn't do justice to the truth. Her, her guard is up, you might say. She's a little bit on the defense. She would like to keep her reality to herself. She doesn't want this stranger to know that what those in the community probably know about her. But Jesus knows. Jesus says to her in verse 17b, You have said, Well, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. Jesus knows what she thinks she's kept hidden. We often play that game with God, although it's not a game. His reply in the Greek, the way he replies to her, the emphasis is on husband. He puts it first in the sentence when he speaks as it's recorded in the Greek, as John put it. Rightly spoken, husband you do not have. 
Sort of sounds like uh, that critter Yoda or whatever his name is, right? You kind of turn into water around. The Greeks like that, but it's intentional. It's not just to be cutesy or whatever so people will coach you. No, in the Greek, when the word order is changed, it's for this emphasis. And that's what Jesus is doing. Rightly, you spoke, husband, you do not have. He put his finger on the point. And then Jesus goes on to point out that what she has right now is a paramour and not a husband. With the grace of law, the light of God's word shines into the darkness of her life. And her desperate need is now exposed. Jesus has, as it were, opened her up. He, the living word, who is sharper than a two-edged sword, comes in and piercing even bone and marrow, thoughts and intents of the heart. He has laid her bare. What's remarkable is what she doesn't do. Before we go on, sinners, you and I must be honest with God if we would have God to save us. We must acknowledge what we are. God is omniscient. He knows everything. Nothing is hidden from His sight. There are no secrets. Jesus is fully God, even though fully man. All that the woman can see is this man. She sees a a human man. She has no idea that he's more than that. It will become revealed to her as the conversation proceeds and even as the Holy Spirit is working in her. But she sees a man. Jesus loves the sinner and therefore he uses the grace of the law to press her more fully so that she will see and acknowledge her need of a Savior. Is that not what we all need? You know, they used to be real trendy when I was younger. You, you know, you want to go convert sinners. You knock on their door and say, you know, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Great. I'm all in, right? No, sinners need to hear you are in a desperate condition. You have broken all of God's laws. His wrath is upon you, and you are under judgment. And if you die apart from Christ, it is all destruction from the Almighty thereafter. So Jesus... Loving the sinner presses the law upon her. He's addressing her heart. The living water that he was offering to her will address her heart, but first she must see her need of it. It is not a thirst of the body that plagues her. Isn't it remarkable? Jesus didn't begin with the law, did he? He began by offering her salvation. It's not God has a wonderful plan for your life. He offered himself. He began there, but now he's taken to her need. He will come back then to the gospel, even himself. Jesus is the light of the world, and he has just brought the brilliance of his truth to bear on her heart. She knows that he knows her for who she really is. She's totally exposed. She answered. She thought it was a secret, but now she knows. He knows what she knows about herself. Indeed, she actually, he actually knows her better than she knows herself. But something is happening because in verse 19, the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Now it's clear to us that the Holy Spirit is working in this situation because you and I both know when we get confronted with our own sin, never mind confront others with our sin, what do we do? We blow up, right? We get angry. We're dismissive. We blame shift. We obfuscate. We do all kinds of things in that moment. But this woman is being drawn by the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a good point for me just to point out something from John's Gospel that is critical to understanding what's happening through the course of what John records. When John the Baptist anointed Jesus as the Messiah, he said of him, 
First, he said, I have baptized with water, but he who comes after me will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. And that's who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment of the prophecy that was made in Ezekiel 36 that God says, I will take out of you a heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. That's what Jesus does by his spirit, the third person of the Trinity. And that's what's happening. The woman here is being operated upon. She's confronted by the Son of God and the Holy Spirit is working within her. Otherwise, none of this would be possible. It's not humanly possible that this woman, dead in her trespasses, could move one little tiny millimeter towards God. But God is drawing her. God is bringing her. It's what we call the effectual call of the Holy Spirit. I think you know that language. That's what's happening. She doesn't argue about the truth. She even admits her guilt. She sees that as a prophet, sees him as a prophet, and that means she knows that there's no secret thing hidden from him, that God can reveal it all to her. She will acknowledge that Jesus was more than a prophet in time. She's going to come to realize he is the prophet that Moses spoke about. Again, early on in John, uh, John the Baptist is going forth, and the people say, who are you? You know, he's, he's doing remarkable. There's something stunning about his, his ministry and his preaching. Who are you? And he says, I'm not the one. I'm not the Christ. And he also says, I'm not the prophet. Because they're expecting that. At the time, uh, uh, here in the first century, as these things are unfolding, there was a heightened awareness within Israel that the Messiah was coming. And so there was, there was this concern and interest in John the Baptist. But he said, no, I'm not even the prophet. But who was he? He was the prophet that was foretold by Malachi, who would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. But he shifts the whole thing around to the one who is the prophet that Moses prophesied about. So this work of the grace of law has her thinking about the promised Messiah, as we will soon see. Before I go on, I don't see see any children present. That's so unusual. I preach to, I don't know, at least a third of my congregation's children. But I will just apply this to all of us. There are no secrets that you keep from your spouses, from your friends, from your elders. There are no secrets, but that the Lord knows them. Others may not be aware, but He knows. Lies told, sneaking around, doing what was forbidden, something stolen, stolen. Secrets with your digital devices. It's a problem we have, isn't it? We think we can do in secret and in darkness and go unnoticed, but there are no secrets. As we see here, God sees all. We lay open and exposed before him. Nothing is hidden from him. Indeed, right now, let the grace of the law cause you to feel the weight of your sins. And indeed, flee to Christ. Perhaps you're a follower of Christ. You already have new life in Christ, but you've been covering up and hiding sin from others. Run to Christ with it. Confess it to him. He knows, he sees, and he is the only one that can address it for you and in you. But let's move on. I mentioned earlier that this woman is a Samaritan. Part of her blindness was the blindness of false religion. So I want to look at that. And it's not unique to then, it's unique, I mean, it's, it's true now. There's always been the false religion's blindness that people are caught up in whatever religion it is, they think they got the religion. What are we told today? Just pick a religion. They all lead to heaven. You just need to have faith. In what? Believe you me, the scripture is clear. If it's not faith in Christ, it is not saving faith. And you will not land in heaven, but in hell. 
It's very important to have our religion right. And yet, here's this woman dwelling amongst the Samaritans. Look at her ongoing response. First, she doesn't not deny the truth of what Jesus has said to her about her immoral life. She's a sinner. She knows it. Her silence says she understands that Jesus' words are true. Second, we see that she does not run away. I already mentioned, she doesn't blow up and argue with me and get angry. That's remarkable. Third, well, that was my third one. She doesn't get angry. She doesn't strike back, attacking this stranger of the Jews who has just exposed her most secret sin. Jesus, in a sense, has put his finger right on her sin, and she stays in the conversation. What is clear in verse 20 is that having her sin exposed, she wants additional instruction. What does she say? I perceive that you are a prophet. She wants to know more. He's a prophet. She's got a question. It's remarkable what the question is about. What does she say? Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and Jews say that in Jerusalem is the one place where we ought to worship. Some read this account, commentators is who I'm thinking about, and they come up with all kinds of ideas. Some say she's trying to change the topic, to deflect the focus off from herself and her sinfulness. What's the wrong conclusion? This woman knows that everyone is to worship God. She understands that she must worship God. She's in front of prophet now, and that's, that's even more. She's mindful that of her sinfulness. She's mindful that there's conflict over worship, and that might well be wrong as well. Her question reveals that she knows there's this tremendous disagreement between the Jews and the Samaritans. Many accusations were hurled indeed by the Jews at the Samaritans. Many, most of them, are valid. Is it okay to worship God in Samaria, or must he be worshipped in Jerusalem? Those of you who know your Old Testament history knows that goes all the way back to when Jeroboam took ten of the tribes and left and built other places of worship. And then they began to be places where he said, this is where you worship Jehovah. And in short order, all was idolatry. In Israel, the ten tribes never had a good king, not one. So here's this debate. The Jews say, the Samaritans say, here's worship wars. Sound familiar? Something the church has been plagued with down through the ages, the idea of worship wars. But the Holy Spirit has convicted her for sin in living her living arrangements. She's immediately aware that she needs other areas address. Sin has made everyone an enemy of God. We are rebels, and we refuse to worship God in the way that He has revealed in His Word. And the only reason that we would worship Him is because He has worked in our hearts. He must transform our hearts, which is leading us to where we're going. The question is, will you worship the only one worthy of worship? That's what we should understand. Will you worship the only one worthy of worship? Like this woman, we should desire to know where and how God is to be worshipped. Matthew Henry comments, Religious worship is an affair of great importance. Men would not contend about it if, it, if they were not concerned about it. End of the quote. And we should be concerned about it. As a Samaritan woman, this woman understands that her fathers argued that God was to be worshipped on Mount Gerizim. She understands that the Jews argued that God was to be worshipped on Mount Zion. The Samaritan believed that Abraham... And Jacob both had built altars on Mount Gerizim. Indeed, they had. 
And so they say, well, tradition's on their side. As for the Jews, the woman understood that they had Jerusalem as the only place to worship God. It turns out that the Samaritans had multiple places. But for the Jews, they contended there's one place. Now, you may not understand this about the Samaritans. They only accepted the five books as Moses. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That, that for them, was the Scripture. And God indicated that he would choose a place among the 12 tribes where his name would be exalted, where he would worship. But that's not named in the five books of Moses. We know that it was God that directed King David to establish a place for the worship of God in Jerusalem on Mount Zion. And then David brought the ark there at some cost. He brought the Ark of the Covenant there into the city with plans to build a temple. But God said, no, David, you're a man of war. You have blood in your hands. It's to your son to build the temple. And Solomon built the temple. And when it was completed, God descended in Shekinah glory and filled the place. So that just like with the tabernacle of old, you could not enter it. You could not approach it as God manifested that he was there in some measure of his presence. Well, over time, God's covenant people rebelled against him. They turned aside to worship false gods. They were nothing more than the work of men's hands. Psalm 115 talks about that. Mouths that do not speak, ears that cannot hear, hands that do not move. Those who worship them will be like them. And Israel had found that out. The ten northern tribes initially, but later the two southern tribes all went into idolatry and false worship. And God conquered them and carried them away. And not only the, the, the altars and stuff in Samaria on Mount Gerizim, but Jerusalem. The temple lay in absolute ruins. And for 70 years they lived in Babylon. But then a remnant came back. And as the Samaritans came back from the captivity, they thought, this should sound familiar to us, they thought they had the liberty to worship God where they wanted to and how they wanted to. That's just the impulse of our sinful hearts. We, we must be constrained by the Word and the Spirit to worship God as He is appointed. And so they once again set up this place in Mount Gerizim and built another altar for worshiping God there. So knowing this, we can better understand the woman's question. She's not been living right before God, and that's been exposed to her. So she wants this prophet, even Jesus, to reveal to her what seems to be hidden as well. Where is the right place to worship God? She's not deflecting. It is a sincere question that needs an honest answer, and indeed a question that all should have. Her conscience has been awakened, and she wants instruction. Well, Jesus answers in three parts, and each of these can be fully developed. I will not do that this evening. But first, Jesus announces that very soon neither neither mountain will be of importance in the matters of the worship of God. Notice what he says to her. Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem, worship the Father. You know, uh, you worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is from the Jews. So Jesus said, very soon, it won't matter which mountain. Secondly, he insists that salvation springs from the Jews and not from the Samaritans. We'll talk about that more in just a moment. Thirdly, Jesus explains the truth about worship that forever makes both mountains and claims about those mountains obsolete, even as it is this day. So Jesus announces that very soon the mountains won't matter in the worship of God. Jesus begins by saying, believe 
me. Now, he's not calling on her to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to be saved. This is a declaration that what he is about to speak is the truth. He's essentially saying, I'm telling you the truth. Believe me. Sometimes you find him saying, verily, verily, as the old King James is, or truly, truly, or amen and amen. That's what he's asserting. Notice that Jesus says, the hour is coming. Now, in John's gospel, when he uses the hour for a measurement of time, he's talking about one thing. He's talking about Christ's sacrifice outside of the sheep gate in Jerusalem. As you work your way through John, you will see that uh, there were times when they wanted to seize Jesus. They wanted to stone Jesus. And yet John records they could not because his hour had not yet come. His hour is appointed to take time at the place of the Passover, that he, fulfilling what the Passover meal and lambs pointed to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sinners of the world, that is the hour. And Jesus says, the hour. He says, the hour is coming. And when Jesus utters it, the hour is very near at hand. It's not a specific uh, it's in, it is in connection with something specific. He's pointing to the hour of his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. The time when Jesus finishes that work that the Father had given him to do. What Jesus is telling this woman is all who hear or read these words, including us, is that his sacrifice of himself for sinners will alter forever the way that God is worshipped. It's radical. It's revolutionary. It's the culmination. It's the fulfillment. Jesus' sacrificial death fulfills and satisfies the entire sacrificial system that God gave to his people through Moses. No more lambs, goats, bullocks, doves, pigeons. The temple and all the aspects of the temple worship will be fulfilled in him and no longer have any value. I'll give you some scriptures that demonstrate that. I may step on some toes here, but I'm going to step on him. If you're holding to a system called dispensationalism, Jesus' words here about worship trample that system. I think you know that. There's no salvation path for Jews and another path for Gentiles. We are saved by Christ alone. There's going to be no rebuilding of the temple and the ashes of the red heifer that are going to honor God. That would be a blasphemous mockery of the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that hits you hard, you need to meditate on that. I think that you understand that. I know you're a pastor, but it still bears worth saying because that's what Jesus is getting at here. All that, that all passes away. It has no more place. And if you argue that it does, you make a mockery of the completed work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Shame on you. Repent of it. Turn from it. But notice what the author in Hebrews says concerning Christ's completed work. When he had by himself purged our sins, set down at the right hand of the majesty on high. But this man, this is Hebrews 10, but this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of the Father. A little later in chapter 12, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finish of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. You sit down when your work is done. Jesus cried out, it is finished. All of that stuff from Moses, all of the sacrificial stuff, it all had a purpose. It was all pointing to him. It's the culmination of the announcement of the garden that the seed of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. He is here. He's speaking to this woman. He will soon go and complete that work and completely make the temple and a temple mountain and all the sacrifices irrelevant. Jesus tells this woman that the debate over where worship 
will take place will very shortly have no merit. And by teaching us, Jesus is in no way diminishing the importance of worship. Nor does he teach that man can worship God however he wants. No, the worship of the Father must be done as the Father demands. We'll move into that here in just a moment. Notice how clearly he speaks in verse 22. You worship what, uh, you, worship what you do not know. We worship, uh, we know what we worship, for salvation of the Jew, is of the Jews. Trust me, red letter editions are not very helpful. They're hard to see. It's better to have just good black on white. Um, that's part of the trouble up here with the lighting and my old eyes. Thus I stumble in the reading of it. But Jesus is clear. The religious beliefs of the Samaritans could not save them. That's the answer to the culture today that clamors all religions, all paths, what, all but what? The true religion. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the completed work of the Son of God who came into the world. That they want to strike down, that they want to do with. But Jesus is telling this woman and the Samaritans what they're doing cannot save them. He is not striking at the sincerity of the Samaritans, but he does strike at this, in that sincerity in beliefs do not save. It is not enough just to believe. It is not enough just to have faith. Jesus is not saying that the object of their worship is unknown to them. They have separated themselves from the stream of God's revelation by not participating in what should be taking place in Jerusalem. In stark contrast, Jesus declares we, including himself, the Jews, worship what we know for salvation is of the Jews. Here's where we see some of the themes of Scripture. God said that the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. He told Abraham... In your seed, Paul points out in Galatians, it's singular. He's talking about Christ. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. It was foretold that through the tribe of Judah would come forth the line of the tribe of Judah, from whom the scepter would not depart. God promised today that he would have a son that would sit on his throne forever and ever. The prophecy of Isaiah made it clear that he would be a sin-bearing servant of the Lord. L-O-R-D, all caps, that best is understood as the faithful, uh, covenant faithful Lord. He would be a sin-bearing servant. Isaiah 53 makes it clear that he will die without descendants. And yet a little while later, read that he will have descendants of great number. Even the promise that was made to Abraham is numerous as stars in heaven and the sand upon the seashore. Thus, this suffering, sin-bearing servant would rise from the dead. This is the true religion, and it is what we must embrace. And so we come finally to true worship in the Spirit. Jesus says, the hour is coming. And what does he go on to say? And now is. The long-expected moment has come. That which the prophets have foretold. Indeed, what God foretold in the garden, right after Adam and Eve's sin, that moment, the seed of the woman is speaking to this woman. He is the fulfillment of all those prophecies. This is a monumental great moment in history when God dwells among men. Emmanuel. God with us. Jesus fully God. And as God the Son, He came to accomplish the greatest thing in all of history. He came to set His people free from sin and misery. He came to crush the serpent's head. For He is, He was and is the seed of the woman. 
He is the seed of, he is the, the descendant of the, or the child of the Virgin Mary, as was foretold as well. He would be doing this by being the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. When Jesus says the hour now is, it's that great eschological hour. The, the time has come. The fulfillment of all these prophecies. Uh, you can read the book of Matthew and see uh, just some of the prophecies that Matthew makes us uh, sure to know concerning the Lord Jesus Christ. Henceforth, man would mark time as before Christ, B.C., and the number of years since the year of our Lord. And of course, we know now they've tried to even do away with that, haven't they? I don't use their system. I encourage you not to either. It's before Christ and the year of our Lord, 2021. Until this hour came, God had dealt with Abraham and his children, Israel's 12 sons, the tribes that they came from. But now the hour has come when the prophecies of old would be fulfilled. The seed of the woman, Abraham's seed, the lion of the tribe of Judah has arrived. Mary's son was the son of God. Her seed was named Jesus because he would save his people from their sin. The impact, the result of his completed work would forever do away with the temple, the sacrifices, the holy of holies, the mercy seat, the veil was rent. The way to God is open by the Lord Jesus Christ. All this is represented in that divine person, Jesus Christ, who is speaking to the woman of Sychar, a woman who had had five husbands and was living with a man at that time. In this context, Jesus speaks then of true worshipers. We might be thinking that this means that sinners will finally be able to truly worship God. This, this verse, uh, verse 23, um, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship Him, has been misconstrued in a number of ways. The true worshipers is not making a distinction about those who worship after Jesus' work is done. It's not that when the hours come and Jesus' work is completed that we're finally going to have true worshipers. That would be disrespectful and do violence to the Old Testament. There have been true worshipers from the beginning. Adam and Eve, I believe, were converted and they worshiped God. Abel was a worshiper of God. There have been those of the line of Seth, the Seth that were worshipers of God. True worshipers of God, truly. There were true worshipers as well as false worshipers who came to the tabernacle when Moses led the people of Israel. There were true and false worshipers that went up to the temple day by day. Just as there are true worshipers and false worshipers who gather in Christian congregations each Sunday. Jesus is teaching this point. Upon his arrival and his work being completed, the distinction between true and false worshipers will have nothing to do with Mount Zion or Mount Gerizim. With the dawning of the New Covenant era, it will not be possible to identify true worshipers by their use of the mountain or structures for worship. But let us understand that there were true worshipers, and there will always be true worshipers of the living God, because they draw near to God by faith. In seminary, it was a while ago now, we had to do a couple of interesting papers. And one of the papers that I had to write, the question was asked, the Old Testament states, the, the, the descendants of Jacob from one of the 12 tribes, when they came to the temple or the tabernacle before that and presented their sacrifice, did it make any difference? Were their sins forgiven? Resoundedly, yes. 
not because of the blood of the bull or the lamb, but because God had commanded them to do this, and they obeyed God. Just like Abraham, they obeyed God, and it was accounted to them as righteousness. There was an efficacy to their sacrifice, to their bringing their sacrifice, because of their heart. They were true worshipers for generations. And what would they have understood? You know, we think of um, Hannah's husband, who brought the family year by year, bringing sacrifices year by year, animals, dozens, hundreds of animals, and they had to keep coming. What would that tell you? This is not enough. There's another one to come. And there were those who were looking, even as Jesus' parents took him into the temple. Simeon and Anna were waiting for the consolation of Israel. There were faithful people in Israel who truly worshiped God. And God is saying, or Jesus is saying, that's what the Father's looking for. Jesus says, the Father is spirit. I want to unpack that a little bit for us because it's important. He is seeking true worshipers who worship in spirit and truth. It is particularly important that we understand what Jesus is saying. Who or what is referred to by spirit? First, the Father is not a spirit, as in one among many. Second, Jesus is not simply saying that God does not have a body like men, as if that defines him. It is true, he does not, but that doesn't define him. Jesus is defining what God is like in the same way that flesh, location, body defines human beings and what we're like. He says God is a spirit. That means that God is invisible and divine and life-giving and incomprehensible, though knowable, as he reveals himself to human beings. We must understand that Jesus is speaking of the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. What Jesus is saying should be translated, God is the Spirit. This is consistent with how John uses Spirit 17 of 21 times in his gospel. This understanding also flows from chapter 4 as Jesus is speaking to the woman. The Spirit was symbolized by the living waters. That's what Jesus gives. He doesn't give you a flask or a cup of living water. That, what he's referring to is the giving of the Holy Spirit. That's why it's living water, the life-giving Spirit, a Spirit that quenches spiritual thirst. The dialogue with this Samaritan woman about living water and quenching spiritual thirst corresponds with what John proclaims after the Feast of Tabernacles in John chapter 7. John records, on the last in the great day of the feast, Jesus stood, he's in the temple, and he cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow living water. It's the work of the Spirit. God is the Spirit. God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God is the one who works. The Holy Spirit who does this divine work in the heart of a sinner. It is the Holy Spirit who gives life to the dead sinner and thus becomes a wellspring of living water. Remember, The Father sends the Spirit through the Son. Jesus refers to the Spirit as the Spirit of Christ. My Spirit, the Spirit from the Father. All three of these, all of this is a fulfillment of three prophecies. Ezekiel 47, there's a picture of the abundance of the life-giving water that flows out from the temple to the nations. There's a parallel in the book of Revelation as well. And it parallels what happened in the garden, in the Garden of Eden. There was this river that seems small, and yet it flows and becomes larger and larger and filling. All of this is picturing the life spirit, life-giving spirit of God. In Joel 3, 
we read, And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, the hills shall flow with milk, all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water, a fountain shall flow from the house of the covenant faithful Lord, and the water of the valley of the Acacias. And then Zechariah, And in that day, this is the day Jesus is talking about. It shall be living, the living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them toward the western sea, both in summer and winter it shall occur. And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. And in that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. Zechariah 14, 8. Each of these prophecies are about the ending of the temple as Christ fulfills all the things that it pointed to when he dies on a Roman cross to save dead sinners that they may live. The flowing of the waters are the pouring out of the Spirit of God that Jesus sends to the nations. Therefore, God's special revelation of His holiness and and His presence by His Holy Spirit will no longer be bound up with stones in a temple, no longer hidden behind the veil of the Holy of Holies. God never was bound to save only the sons of Abraham His salvation, it is from the Jews. Jesus is a Jew, but it's not only for the Jews. That was the mistake that the sons of Abraham made. We see this so clearly when we read the Old Testament. Pharaoh that knew Joseph, I'm convinced, was a man of faith. Uh, Ruth the Moabite, Naaman the leper, to name but three. It is most remarkable that Jesus is teaching a woman of poor repute, a Samaritan. It's a picture of the fulfillment that it's not just for the Jews. He has come as a chief religious teacher to a Samaritan woman in the middle of the day, showing that there's no one beyond the reach of God to save. The manner of worship the Father seeks, he says, is by the Spirit. God is a Spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. In some sense, Jesus is restating what He's already been saying. But we should not miss something important here. Because of what we have learned already, this text should be clear. This is one of the most important texts in Scripture about worship. Do you notice the must? We must worship in spirit and in truth. So it's very important that we understand what he means by this. This is the fourth time in John's gospel he's used must. John 3, there's uh, three of them in three. John 3, you must be born again. The Son of Man must be lifted up. He must increase, but I must decrease, as John takes us back to John the Baptist. And now those who worship God must worship in spirit and in truth. Think about what we've just been learning. This is not a statement that is saying, you must be truly sincere. This is not a saying that says, you must be truly sincere about the truth. It's not just that you get the regulative principle right, though that is important. They are certainly true, but they're the work of the Holy Spirit in the sinner's heart. This worship that the Father is seeking is the result of the work that God the Father does. First, by so loving the world, He sent His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should have everlasting life. Second, by the Holy Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son into the dead heart of a sinner to regenerate them, renew their will, to give them the same uh, faith and repentance to live. Thus the Spirit becomes the fountain of water springing up to life, even as Jesus promised the woman when He first engaged with her. A sinner, my friends, get this, a sinner, any sinner, every sinner, male or female, who has had the work of God in their heart is now able to worship God the God who saves in spirit 
and in truth because they have the Spirit. There's something interesting. I'm drawing to a close here. John makes use of the word woman in this gospel. Uh, Perhaps it struck you as odd when at the wedding in Canaan, Jesus addresses his mother as woman. Seem odd. Seems a little impersonal. It's not. John is recording something here that is most significant. That's the first time that he uses that. Jesus refers to his mother as woman. Here in the account and before us is the second woman. There are seven women in John's gospel. The last is in the garden after the resurrection when Mary is clinging to Jesus thinking he's the gardener and he says to her, woman. It sounds impersonal even as it does with his mother. But this is theological. This is significant. Seven women. The completion because John then writes the book of Revelation. And what do we find in the book of Revelation as it closes out? We find a woman in a garden with a man. How did it all begin? A woman in the garden with a man. But in this case, it's the God-man. And the woman is the church in the garden. It gives me goosebumps thinking about it. It's just, wow. This this is the unfolding of the Scriptures. And John pivots between Genesis and Revelation. He brings these things together. We would see that Jesus is the fulfillment of the whole from the beginning to the end of the Scriptures. And we're the woman We are the woman. The church is the woman, the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is announcing the end of temple worship, the end of worship in Jerusalem. By his sacrifice, Jesus will loose the Holy Spirit to flow like a river out to the nations so that they may all come to worship God the Father through Jesus the Son Son, by the powerful working of the Holy Spirit within us. So the church, the woman, should be complete. All those that the Father has given to His Son, would all be gathered in, there in the garden, as numerous as the stars in heaven, from every tribe and tongue and nation on earth, all having life from the same life-giving Spirit that is a wellspring of life that quenches our thirst. Jesus is announcing that the Father is seeking out these. He's seeking out these by the Holy Spirit so that we may all be brought in to worship Him forever and ever through all eternity. From the outset, I declared the point is, are you a true worshiper of the true God? You know the answer. You can only be so if you have the Spirit. You need the life-giving Spirit that the Father sends through the Son, that He can send because of the work of the Son, that He comes into us and does what we cannot do for ourselves to give us life, life without end, forevermore the powerful Holy Spirit. If you do not have this salvation in Christ, know this. You, can worship, you will worship something, but it is not the living God of heaven. But He bids you come. Amen? Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we marvel at Your Scriptures. Some here have studied the Scriptures for decades, and yet their testimony will be They keep finding treasuries, old and new. Father, we've looked at some wonderfully wonderful truths this evening, marvelous things to behold, and we've only begun to scratch the surface. Father, we thank you for the life-giving Spirit who springs up within us as you give us to be a life, living water to flow from us, uh, to enable us that we can worship you in, through, and by your Spirit, Spirit, that our worship would be faithful and true, and that this has been made certain and secured by your Son with His completed work on the cross. 
Lord, be glorified as you continue to draw together those who belong to the bride of Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand together and I will pronounce a benediction. It's a little less than an hour. I know John preached an hour here recently. I didn't tell him you got you ready for it, but that was about what I thought it'd be. But I wanted you to see. Were there not glorious things there for us to behold? Rich, glorious things. I hope you're blessed and you have much to think upon this week. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the God the Father and the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.